Take out your Bibles and turn to Revelation 22. We'll be in verses 6 through 21. While you're doing that, here we are. The last Sunday of 2021. God has graciously and sovereignly brought us here to be together. In a few short days, we will flip the calendar page. Hopefully many of us, if you still write checks, will remember to change the date when you write a check. And when we flip this calendar page, it's going to signify that 2021 has come, it has gone, and 2022 is on its way, and it's here. The reality of the calendar flip is that for many of us, we look to it to hopefully bring a better year. If we're honest... Many of us had the same kind of feeling at the end of 2020, and we looked to 2021, our hope, what we were looking toward, whether we realized it or not, was found in the flipping of a calendar page. For some, 2021 was better. For some of us, 2021 actually was worse than 2020. This is a sobering reminder That our hope has to be in something. We have to look towards something. Rather, someone who does not change. One who is faithful. One who keeps His promise. One who loves us. So our hope is not found in the flip of a page. Rather, it is found in our Lord Jesus Christ. Over the past few weeks, we have looked at the songs of Mary and Zechariah and the angels and, and Simeon. And all these center on the fact that they are a people who were waiting for the Messiah, the promised one. And now he has come. He has come to save his people from their sins. We too are a people who are waiting. We are waiting for his return. Where he will make all things new. And the final consummation of God's divine redemptive plan is fulfilled. And so today we look at the song, The Cry of the Church. Come, Lord Jesus, from Revelation 22, 6, verses 21. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servant what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw him, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside of the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral, murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things to the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. 
And let the one who hears say, come. And the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of the the prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word as we look to your return. God, help us to be a people who dwell on your return, looking forward to the day when we see you in glory. Father, bless this time for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we pick up here in verse 6, our our scene is right after Satan has been dealt the final blow, and now John has been taken around and shown the new heaven and the new earth. But the story doesn't stop there. The angel of the Lord turns to John and gives final instructions and reveals this final piece of the picture. It is unveiled. And in verse 6 he says, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what soon must take place. You see here that the angel, as he speaks, begins affirming the validity and the veracity of these words. Everything that John has heard up until this point and the words to follow in this passage are all true. John can trust them. There's no need to doubt them. By extension, you and I can trust them and cannot doubt them because we know one thing. These words are trustworthy and true because they come from God. The last part of this verse is clear that the Lord God himself is the one who sends the angel. He's the one that has the message that the angel proclaims to John. Just like he sent the prophets to proclaim the message to the people. So now he has done it once again through his angel. These words come from the very heart and mind of God. We know that God is trustworthy and true, and so therefore his words are trustworthy and true. In fact, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, and Revelation 19, 11, Jesus is described as the faithful and true one. Those are the exact words that the angel uses right here. The words are trustworthy and true because God is trustworthy and true. These words are not only trustworthy and true, but these are loving and gracious demonstrations of our God. He has pulled back the curtain. He has shown us as his servant the final chapter, how it all ends. This is good news for us because we are waiting. We are waiting in a world that is filled with sin and death and sorrow. And God has not left us guessing what will happen. Now in my earlier years, and maybe in some of my latter years, I was a fan of professional wrestling. If you didn't know that, now you do. And people were always amazed and astonished at this. And they would come up to me and say, do you know that the matches are planned and the finishes are fixed and the outcomes are already known? You know, and so as I was thinking about this passage, it's like the outcome's already fixed. The end is already fixed. But you know, in those wrestling matches, sometimes things went wrong and the finish had to be changed on the fly. But that's not the case here in Revelation 22. God has planned before time began that this is how things would take place. And God does not fail. And he's never caught off guard. The end is sure. And we can trust what his word says about it. We can have hope and joy knowing the end is coming because of what God is going to do. 
We know that this turns out for our good and ultimately it turns out for the glory of God. I think as we read this verse too, one word, one aspect of this verse gets overlooked sometimes. is the fact that this stuff must soon take place. We would do well to remember God's ways and timing are not ours. You think about the Israelites, they were in slavery for 400 years. In between the Old and New Testaments, 400 years of prophetic silence. God has a perfect plan, and God has perfect timing. Part of what Pastor Ricky read earlier, 2 Peter 3.8, But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The reality is we've been living in the last days since Christ came, since He died, since He rose again, and we are one day closer today than we were yesterday. And as we wait, it's, it's helpful for us to re- remember and remind ourselves that He is coming soon, and we should look to His coming. But how do we wait patiently and hopefully when we don't know the specific day of our Lord's return? We can do so by the strength of the Spirit because of what we are looking for, namely Christ. He Himself is coming. That's how we can have hope and as we wait. Now in verse 7, the speaker changes and Jesus speaks, enters the conversation, says, and behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Jesus promises his return. His return, it is sure, and it is soon. Now for the believer, that is a wonderful promise. I mean, you think about the historical audience of Revelation. The apocalyptic and prophetic letter of Revelation is sent to encourage the churches who are facing persecution The Spirit gave these words to remind God's people that God sees, that God knows, and God is working. They have not been abandoned. But the Lord is coming back to put an end to all of His enemies, once and for all. And this ought to bring encouragement to the church today as well. Because the church is facing persecution and seems battered by the enemy. And it's going to continue to grow. But we have not been forsaken Christ has come and He is coming once again. And we know this to be true because of His Word. We'll give you a couple of examples of where we see this idea of Christ's presence, Him leaving and, and the returning and the promise of His return. John 14, 1-7. We read this passage at funerals, but it's so much more than just a funeral passage. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. And even as Jesus is ascended in Acts chapter 1, there's a promise of his return. Acts chapter 1, 8 through 14. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the time or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into the heaven as he went, behold, two men, stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 
What encouraging news. And then you can go on to 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 where the Lord's return is used as, as a way to encourage the believers. And we're encouraged by his promise of his return because he can be trusted and he's proven so. The latter part of this verse reminds us of the blessing that there is in keeping the words of this prophecy. It's the same idea that we see here in Revelation 1-3 where John writes, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written for the time is near. In light of Christ's return, we are called to keep what God has commanded us. What does that look like? We're to stay faithful to everything that God has commanded us to do. We're to treasure His Word by not just being merely hearers of the Word, but by doing the Word. We're called to treasure this Word by storing it in our hearts that we might not sin against Him. One commentator wrote it, this way to kind of sum it up. He said, heed the words of this book. Worship God. Be a student of the Bible. Read it. Memorize it. Hide it in your heart. Meditate on it. Do not let it depart from your mouth. That's how we keep this. Another practical way that we keep the words of this prophecy is that we must keep the Lord's return before us. When was the last time that you thought about, talked about the Lord's return? It seems that in our day, we don't focus on this much or very little at all. Every believer, no matter how young or old you are, should long for heaven. We should long for the Lord's return. We should think about his return. We should dwell on his return. We should sing about it, talk about it, pray about it. This isn't something that we think about as we near the end of our lives. It is something as God's people we should be thinking about every day. Thinking about the songs of when we all get to heaven. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. When was the last time we thought like that? Or we thought like the fourth verse of it as well. And Lord, haste the day when thy faith shall be sighed. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. That's the response of God's people. To sing about this, to pray about it, to think about it, to dwell on it. Because the Lord's return is cause for singing. It is cause for celebration and for worship. That's the very response that we see in the next two verses. Verses 8 and 9. And John says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Now John speaks and he is testifying to the fact that he heard these things. He saw these things. He was there. It was taking place. He is an eyewitness of what has been revealed to him. John didn't hear it from a friend who heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend. He was there. God graciously invited John in to witness these things, to share in them. And with all these things, what does he do? He bows down and he worships. It's the right response. But the problem is, is that John bows down at the feet of the angel to worship. And the angel quickly rebukes him and corrects him and said, don't do that. Don't do that. I am 
a fellow servant with you. The angel's not belittling or demeaning angels or prophets or Christians, but rather he is reminding John that none of us compare to God and none of us compare to his majesty. The angel simply sums up and says, worship God. These two words are so simple and yet so profound. Our response to the things of Scripture, to the things of God, when we encounter Him through His Word, should be worship. God is the only one who is worthy of our praise and adoration. And we should be thankful for God's gifts to us and that we have pastors and angels and apostles and deacons and teachers and leaders and prophets. All the things that we see, those are God's gifts to the church. And it's good to celebrate and to give honor, but they are not to be worshipped. Leon Morris stated this way, even the greatest of God's servants are not to be worshipped. Worship is reserved for God alone. We must be on guard that we do not elevate people or angels or anything to an improper place to where they are lifted above the Lord. It is right to respond to the Lord's return with worship, but that worship goes to Him and to Him alone. Now after John has been addressed by the angel concerning worship, the angel continues giving instructions to John in verses 10 and 11. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and let filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Interestingly enough, John is told not to seal up these prophecies. The reason the angel gives is because the time is at hand. The time is near. The Lord's return is at hand. Now see, this is different than what we see in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, and verses 8 and 9, where the prophet is instructed to seal up the words of the prophecy because the time was not near. The time has come. The end is near. And so these words are to be made known. They're to be shared. For in them the end of time has been revealed, which serves as an encouragement to the believer and a warning to those who are outside of Christ. Now verse 11 can be quite baffling at first glance. Why would the angel of the Lord command people to still do evil and still be filthy? This this passage must be interpreted in light of the second coming. It seems to serve as a warning and an encouragement. The command is most likely a command of permissiveness. How a person responds to this prophecy demonstrates whether or not they have been changed by the gospel. In essence, the angel is saying, let them be as they are, continue as they are, for their true nature has been revealed. In light of the return of Christ, people must contemplate where they stand in relationship to Christ. This is an encouragement, believer, to stay the course, to remain faithful, for Christ is coming soon. For the one who practices evil, unbeliever, they're warned that Christ is coming soon and he will judge them. If they are righteous and holy, then they will continue to pursue righteousness and holiness. Because the Lord, their Lord, is coming. If they're evil and filthy, then they will pursue evil and filthiness because they've rejected Christ as Lord. One practical question, believers, and I'm talking to believers only. Does hearing this prophecy make you feel the need to drastically change your way of living right now? Now, I'm not talking about the fact that we all need continual sanctification and growth. Rather, I'm speaking at the fact that your life is inconsistent with a manner worthy of the calling of the gospel that Christ has placed on your life. I mean, if you knew the Lord was coming back tomorrow and it changes everything for you and you would be totally different, let me appeal to you. Live in light of the gospel. Live in light of the cross. Live in light of the resurrection. Live in light of the second coming now. 
we as believers should already be living this way. And in light of who Christ is, what he has done, who we are in him, and in light of his return. Jonathan Edwards in his resolutions wrote this, Resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. This mindset helped him to approach a lifestyle of holiness by the Spirit's work. We should take time to think about our lives right now in light of the promised end. I was reading one writer from the C.S. Lewis Institute, and and this writer was reflecting on C.S. Lewis's thoughts on the second coming. I want you to hear what he wrote. Pondering the second coming of Christ confronts us not only with our own mortality, but also with the fact that we must one day give account of our lives to Almighty God. This sobering realization can free us or help free us from our preoccupation with ourselves, our love of this world, and our neglect of the eternal. Or to put it differently, it can help prepare us for the world to come. For these reasons, Lewis believed that the second coming of Christ ought to be more valued and made more frequently the subject of meditation. But what if Jesus doesn't return in our day? Isn't our effort in vain? Not at all. For 2,000 years, wise believers have been living in readiness for his return. And although he did not appear in their day, they eventually met him in death without shame, dismay, or regret. May we live our lives the same way. We need to be a people who are ready for his return, precisely because of what we see in verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. We see Jesus speak here again in verse 12 and reiterate that he's coming soon. Again, it's the second time he said this. This time, though, there's a qualifier that's added. When he comes, he is coming to repay each person according to their actions. Those evil and filthy people mentioned in verse 11 will be dealt with according to their sin, their evilness, and their filthiness. Likewise, the righteous and holy will be dealt with on the basis of Christ and his righteousness applied to their lives. Please don't miss this contrast of the second coming and the incarnation. Jesus came the first time to be born, to live a perfect life, willingly laid down his life on the cross and be raised. All of this was to bring salvation to God's people. And now in his return, he comes to claim his bride and to judge. We saw indications of this in John 3, 16 through 21. For God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The world already had judgment upon it due to their sinfulness and rejection of Christ. But he came to bring salvation. And however, in his second coming, he has now come to judge the world. And we will be called to give an account and will answer for our actions. Jeremiah 17.10 is the Lord who searches and tests, and he will give to everyone according to their ways. Those who are not in Christ are already condemned and God's wrath abides on them. They have no plea. They are guilty. The believer, on the other hand, no longer under God's wrath. Their plea is Christ and his blood. 
He has paid the price. He has covered their sins by his blood. Listen, the Lord will come swiftly. And when he does, it will be too late. When he comes, he is coming to judge and to repay. Please hear this warning and heed it while there's still time if you sit in here and you are outside of Christ. Verse 13. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now it's interesting he makes this statement of these titles after what he has just said. Why is this here? Because everything that has taken place, everything that has been seen is rooted in the character of God. God is eternal and the utmost and highest and final authority. Jesus, as the eternal God, has the authority to bless his people and curse those who reject him. He has no beginning and end because he is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. None are before him. He is the standard and the authority because everything was made by him and for him. Colossians 1 15 through 17, he, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Our physical lives begin with God as creator. The believer's new lives begin in Christ because he is our savior and our redeemer. Our lives, ends, and goals are Christ in his glory. God is gracious here to remind us of who he is because we are tempted to forget that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the first, the last, the beginning, and the end. He is the eternal God who has dominion over all. And this humble reminder is that God had the right to destroy us because of our sin, and yet his perfect plan would allow us to be reconciled by his Son to him. And we're blessed by this glorious truth. But this blessing, this glorious truth, is only a blessing to us if we see what we see in verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. This is a blessing because those who have washed their robes have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb that you see in Revelation 7.14. This crimson flow of Christ's blood removes the dark stain of sin and makes us white as snow. This gives us the right to the tree of life and to enter the city by the gates. In Genesis, Adam and Eve disobeyed and they were cut off from the tree of life. They were cast out of the garden and we too have been cast outside the city because of our sin. But now because of Christ, we are welcomed in. We are adopted into God's family and through Christ, we may enter in. We sang that earlier when we sang to God be the glory. Take a moment. Humbly think about this. What do the tree of life and entering the the city gates mean? What does it represent? We get to enjoy God and to be in his presence forever. That's what we get. We get God because of his son. Oh, what wonderful joy. For you see, we were once outside and now we have been brought in by the blood of Christ. In verse 15, though, we see a contrast. Outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Several groups are described here. We see 
you know, he mentions dogs, which Scripture would use to refer to, you know, vile people, Gentiles, those outside of the Jewish people throughout. You see sorcerers here who would use magic and divination to try to gain control rather than submitting to God's control and his power. We see the sexually immoral who misuse the body and seek their own desires. We see murderers who take lives of those who are made in the image of God. We see idolaters who worship false gods. Those who love lies and practice and promote things that are opposite of the truth of God's word. Now, while all these groups are very specific, we really need to lump them together as a picture, as a representative of evil and those who stand against and reject God. They cannot enter the kingdom of God. We see this in Galatians 5, 19 through 21 and 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. The types of people that do not inherit the kingdom. The reality is though, those people who have been changed by the gospel can enter in. Apart from Christ, all of these that are mentioned here are like their father the devil and their end will be his end. Destruction. Now, may, we may hear these words and we're like, wow, that sounds harsh. That just seems, whew. I don't know if I can take that. But, but we need to know, these are not idle threats. These are not idle promises. They're not coming from some cranky deity. No, they're coming from God, a holy God, whose laws we violated and committed cosmic treason. They come from Christ himself, who is God, who is the one who came to pay the price. Jesus jumps back in in verse 16, emphatically states that he is the one who sent the angel. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The emphasis here, though, is that Jesus is speaking and he is the one doing the sending. So when we hear these words of what he's coming to do, we need to listen up. He is the one speaking and saying, here's what's coming. And he's doing it out of his holiness. He's doing it out of his love. This is an act of authority and grace here that he sends the angel to encourage and to warn. The message for the people. Now he is the root here, he uses some titles, the root and descendant of David. His coming was foretold from Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, uh, verse 10, and then Isaiah 53, 2. Uh, let's just take a moment and hear Isaiah 11, 1 through 2. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the wisdom and understand, spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. These titles that Isaiah writes are prophesying the coming Messiah, the one who is the source of the line of David, the one who comes from the line of David, is now the one who speaks and the one who is coming once again to fulfill the promises of God. Here Jesus also refers to himself as the bright and morning star, which is a reference to Numbers twenty four seventeen. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheph. This bright and morning star, our king, with his scepter, will destroy his enemies. And as the bright and morning star, he will shatter the darkness and shatter the night and a new day will dawn. And in this day, there will be no more night. Darkness will not overcome the light. Now, how do we respond to such great truths that we've seen? Verse 17, I think is helpful here. The spirit and the bride say, come. 
And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Now in regard to this passage, scholars are divided over to whom the imperative come is directed. One option is that the first two are with the spirit and the bride and the one who hears is a reference to the Lord's return. They're directing that, that come to come Lord Jesus. And the other half is an invitation for sinners to come to Christ. The other option that they suggest is that all of this is an invitation to come to Christ. Either way, there are important truths that we can glean from these verses and need to see. First, the song, the cry, the desire of God's people should be for Christ to come back. Do you desire for Christ to come back? If so, let me ask you, why? Is it because this world is terrible and sinful? Or is it because Christ is your Lord, your Savior, and He is wonderful? Believer, if you do not desire for Christ to return, have you ever wondered why? Maybe you're looking forward to the next stage of your life. You're ready to graduate, maybe you're ready to get married, maybe you're ready to have kids, you're looking for some big trip that's coming, you're waiting for grandchildren. Or maybe we're getting too comfortable in this world. One commentator wrote, suffering Christians long for Jesus' return. But some people are more comfortable with the world and view the end of the present world with anxiety. Sometimes we love things that are not wrong, but if we yearn for them more than we yearn for Jesus, those priorities are wrong. Listen, I can identify with wanting to see the next stage of my life. Listen, I'm, I'm Tori's husband, and I want to grow old with her. I want to see my kids grow up. I want to see them have families and have kids of their own. I mean, I sit around in my free time, and I do the math that if each one of my kids had five kids, that's 25 grandkids. <laughs> and, if, and if that wasn't even enough for you, I then I do the math and go, if my 25 grandkids had five kids, that's 125 great-grandkids. And I'm like, yes, hot dog, let's go. <laughs> and no, I didn't put this in the sermon because it was fake. I really do sit around and think about things like that at times. Um, ask Tori. But, but listen, you know, as, as great as those things are, looking for the next trip, the next stage of your life, whether it's marriage or graduation or whatever it may be, listen, those things should be looked forward to and you should want to celebrate them. But let me say this, they pale in comparison to the glory and the majesty of Christ and his return. He is far better. And believers, we should long for and desire his coming. Another important truth that we do see here is the invitation to come to Christ. There is coming a day when the end is here and there is no more opportunity to turn to Christ. The good news for us today is there is still time while it is today. Today is the day of salvation. The invitation to come is to come to Christ and to drink from the living water that he offers. You can see that in John 7, 37, Isaiah 55, 1. This water will satisfy and give life. And it is without price because Christ has paid the price on the cross. Hell is real. And salvation is real. Listen, we have been featuring this month the Lottie Moon Offering. 
Because we, as God's people, know and understand that there are people who are made in the image of God, who are still under God's wrath, they've never heard the name of Christ, and they're still in their sin. This is a reminder, it's an urgent call, there's urgency while there's still time to go and make disciples, to make his name known among the nations. Listen, and that starts here. It starts in our homes, it starts in our neighborhoods, it starts in our jobs, it starts in our schools, it starts in our families, it starts in every circle of influence that you and I have been afforded by the Lord Jesus Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Now, I'm an unbeliever for a moment, I want to talk to you. You may be sitting here and you do not know Christ. I invite you to come to Christ. As the Spirit calls, as He leads, you must simply confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and you will be saved. The call is to come to Christ. Let me sum it up this way. The desire for believers should be for Christ to come and for sinners to come to Christ. That's what we should desire. Now John is on the downward slope and he heads toward the end of the book and another warning is given. He says, I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this book. The warnings we see here in verses 18 and 19 mirror that of Deuteronomy 4.2 and 1232. Two things are prohibited. Adding to the word of God and taking away from them. Now while the command is specifically directed towards the book of Revelation, the prophecy here, by extension, that applies to all of God's word. It would be included in this command. Adding and taking away alters the content which ultimately changes the message. And there are dire consequences for both of these actions. This is not something the Lord takes lightly. He takes it very seriously. Adding to the word of God results in plagues being added to those whoever, whoever would violate this command. And likewise, subtracting from it results from the share of the tree of life being taken away. Now, I don't think this is reference to a person being able to lose their salvation. Rather, the indication here is that those who profess Christ would not do this. Those who are still under God's wrath, Maybe they professed outwardly, but inwardly they did not belong to the body. They would participate in taking away and adding to the word of God. A believer would not do that because they treasure God's word. They value God's word. Notice that the punishment here matches the crime. And these are serious offenses. And no believer would want to be a part of such an atrocious act. The language here paints a very vivid and clear picture that judgment awaits those who take away or add to the word of God. We live in a day where this is taking place. People change God's word. Excuse me, they try to change God's word to fit their needs. They are false teachers. They are liars. And they paint themselves as messengers of light. They will add requirements for salvation, basically saying Jesus is insufficient for salvation and sanctification. They'll remove sin as a part of the equation, making the sacrifice of Christ unnecessary. And those are just two examples of how this takes place. And the Word of God is under attack. Right here, on this pulpit, there's a plaque that reads, You are required to believe, teach, and preach what the Bible says is true, not what you want it to say is true. Church, that's for everybody who stands up here. But as a church, we're required to do the same thing, to believe and teach and preach what the Bible says is true. End of discussion. 
we have no right to change the message of Scripture. For it is God's word and it will abide forever. As we approach the end of this chapter, the context, remember, of everything in this is, is verses 6 21 is the return of Christ. So John brings our attention once again to this very fact. He, he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. One writer put it this way He said that the very close of this book is the confession that answers to the problem of life do not lie in people's ability to create a better world, but in the return of the one whose sovereign power controls the course of human affairs. Redemptive history remains incomplete until Christ returns. It is for the final act in the great drama of redemption that the church waits with longing. The one who testifies is faithful, trustworthy, and true. The idea of Christ coming back and coming soon is repeated multiple times, which emphasizes that it's important, it is fixed, it is certain. What he tells us when he is coming soon. His timing is not our timing. His soon is not our soon. And yet hearing Christ's words as a believer, surely I'm coming soon, does what? Brings comfort to his people. We look around and we're tempted to ask, how long, O Lord? How much longer? When are you coming? The answer, soon. Child of God, it will be soon. Unbeliever. Hearing Christ's words, surely I am coming soon. It's not pleasant for you. I'm believing the day of the Lord, it's a day of woe for you. When will Christ come to judge? Soon. Please turn to him while there's still time. Place your faith in him. This isn't trying to manipulate you, but it's a sobering reminder. He is coming soon, church. Because of who he is and what he has done for his glory, for our good, John's response here should be our response. Amen. And amen simply means so be it. Let it be. This is what we desire here. The cry, the plea, the song, the desire of the church is what? Come, Lord Jesus. Now that seems to be a good place to stop, doesn't it? And if you were in Hollywood, they may have stopped right here. They'd say, all right, let's go. Come, Lord Jesus, and cut. But wait, there's more. The Spirit continues. There's a final benediction here. Don't overlook this, please. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Why end it this way? Why not just stop with come, Lord Jesus? Remember, we as God's people are waiting. And while we wait, we need His grace. The same grace that saves and sanctifies is the same grace that sustains. And it sustains us while we wait for his return. It's the same grace that keeps us and guards us and guides us and gives us that desire to look toward heaven and to look toward the return of Christ. And so church, by his grace we say, come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word.